the other aspects of the case, it doesn't really surprise me so much that Gorsuch was on board because he hates not being able to review administrative fora. He thinks they're all dumb and he's the only genius in the world. How long are we going to let Charles go before we remind him this is the Fifth Circuit? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was having a, a double take there. So Gorsuch really didn't have a lot going on on that. If it, it would be if he had written a dissent I on that, run away I would, it would into have been Patel quite in my head. Yeah, yeah. You think if you think anyone's going to hear that, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Hostile Witness, a podcast about law at the end of the world. I'm Charles Starr. Hostile Witness is a sporadically scheduled look at the tragedy and stupidity of our fake laws. Today, as you just heard, we start with the Fifth Circuit taking a hatchet to administrative agencies, before heading up to the Supreme Court who have predictably chosen to screw immigrants and sanctify bribes. Welcome to Hostile Witness. Bear with us. So I guess we'll. So I guess we'll just get going. I, hey everyone, <laughs> uh, welcome, welcome back to uh, Hostile Witness. Uh, it's been a while. Um, yep, we're finally and, back. Um, we got Tarek, Andy, everyone's back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we have. Yeah, it's we've cleaned house. Uh, we, no, uh, I have. I have brought back uh, the original. The original crew, uh, Patrick and Eric, are both here with me. But I have dragged Tim from Tarek's clutches <laughs> and brought him back here uh, with me from A Lab because I want to cover constitutional issues. And every time I say that in front of Tarek or Andy, they block me out of the chat. Whereas I have nothing better to do. Yeah. <laughs> and to the extent that anyone in this band of idiots has any expertise in anything, Tim actually has expertise in immigration. Laws of that will come in handy. So I guess we'll start. We'll start with. Well, I guess we'll start with letting people say hello. Uh, Eric, you want to say hi? Hey, been a while. Yeah, for the for the listener out there who's been wondering what happened to Hostile Witness back in 2021, Charles took a large portion of his podcasting uh, fortune and put it into crypto, and uh, now he needs to. get a little bit of a cash flow. So he's resurrected the pot. He called me and Patrick back up again. I was going to lie and say this was like episode 23 and then sort of put it on the audience to just assume their phones all screwed up. But that works too. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So here we are after an unbelievably long hiatus because I'm finally willing to edit something because I'm very upset about uh, Jarkizi. This qualifies as an emergency podcast, doesn't it? Yeah, this it is, does. Uh, what's the one? It what's does. the guys that have gotten on NPR now? Strict Scrutiny. They do emergency podcasts. I think I have a lot of trouble with. Strict I, sh- I should Scrutiny say I've never listened to that podcast in my entire life. My trouble with them is that they're credentialed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you cannot be a podcaster if you're credentialed. That's ridiculous. Go write a brief <laughs> if you if you have actually clerked for a Supreme Court justice. You should not actually. Be they should be writing amicus curiae briefs, not uh, yes, not actual briefs. <laughs> For the sake of burnishing our own credentials, uh, for the sake of burnishing our own credentials, we should say that these are exigent circumstances and not an emergency podcast. I think that would make us all sound smarter. <laughs> right, right. Jarkizi is a case that has been really annoying me. For people who don't know, the Fifth Circuit has decided that the executive branch can't do anything. Yeah, pretty much. Article One no longer counts. Uh, not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
The more specific thing that they did is that they said that the SEC's internal prosecution had like three different constitutional infirmities and they threw out the finding of liability, a finding of guilt in an SEC proceeding against a a scam boiler room hedge fund. (laughs) Yeah, this this case, if you were going to write, you know, a textbook chapter of what are the, the hottest button issues in administrative law today, you would write the three you would write up the three topics that were decided by the Fifth Circuit in this case, and of course decided against the government in in all three. First and foremost, the the issue of constitutionality of removal restrictions that's been a very hot button issue. Uh, the non delegation doctrine, which is uh, making a comeback these days, and then also this uh, this this one is one I was less familiar with, but this idea that um, you have a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial, even in administrative proceedings. Um, I mean, I think it's fairly novel, isn't it, to say the least? Well, they've been arguing it for a while. I will admit that I did not expect Eric to actually give the three hot button issues. (laughs) I absolutely thought a joke was coming. Well, and the only three hot button issues, luckily. Like, we we sort these out, and then we can all kind of chill out for a while. That's Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it is true. Those are the three. The The big one, I think the one that surprised everyone was the jury trial issue. Because they aren't the first people to argue it. This is just the first court to say that that it's true. Right. Maybe we should back up and just like give a summary of yeah, what yeah. actually happened. Yeah, because I got to cut out a lot anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So who's Jareski? Jarkezi? Jarkezi. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Jarkezi is he's the hedge fund manager and he is advised by Patriot 28 LLC. Uh you know that that's legitimate. Right. Uh Patriot 28 LLC is run by Tommy Belisis who was an advisor on Wall Street Money Never Sleeps because he was a flamboyant boiler room guy who the New York Post wrote about right before he himself was barred from the industry. I thought Patriot 28 was referring to five-time Pro Bowl running back Curtis Martin. So I guess I must have Googled the wrong one. No, no, no. He uh, <laughs> he provided the seed money. I'm going to remember some guys on Hostile Witness now. <laughs> <laughs> they had a boiler room. They, they, would, they would inflate the value of their assets. They would pay excess fees to both Jarkizi and the advisor, Belisis, even though Belisis really didn't seem to do a whole lot for the money. And they lied about everything they were investing in. Basically, everything they ever did was a lie. And this is this is basically like a bread and butter SEC case, right? Like this is just like, oh, go yeah. through it, get your numbers up for national office. <laughs> like easy, easy peasy. Just get a get a settlement out of there and, and just be like, you stop doing this. Yeah, and if you want to pick the worst possible plaintiff to rip down the SEC on behalf (laughs) of, this might be him. I I linked his Wikipedia profile when we were prepping for this case. I just have to say, like, just one of the most blatant examples of someone writing their own Wikipedia page I think I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So readers (laughs) or listeners, check it out if, if you can. It's so clearly written by himself so that he could have a Wikipedia page. I will say that my favorite part of it is there's one sentence George Jarkizi does like a conservative radio show uh like you yeah, do out, if you run Patriot I don't know LLC. if it still exists 
Um, but he, but there's one sentence where it just says guests on the show have included Congressman Kevin Brady, Congressman Randy Weber, Senator Chuck Schumer, Charlie Daniels, Dr. Thomas Sowell, Senator Dr. Tom Coburn. There's a comma and it ends there. (laughs) (laughs) But each of those names has a footnote. And when you go to the footnote, it's just their name again. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, because it's my... not, it's like not a link to them or a link to their page. It just says their name. Or more and... crucially, a link to them actually being on whatever podcast or radio show that is too. Right, right. It's not the episode, right? <laughs> it's none of those things. So, so this is the man who ended the SEC in the Fifth Circuit, <laughs> right. basically. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's a huge and potentially upset. nationwide. Yes. Yeah, that's it. They're done. And so that's it. I mean, they lose on the facts. That's the first thing, is that they are found guilty by the administrative law judge in the SEC. Between fines and disgorgement, it costs, it's like a million dollars. They give an industry bar to Jarkizi, uh, and they shut down the LLC. Right. And, and again, this this is boilerplate stuff, right? Like this is this is what's yeah. supposed to happen. They more or less violated securities law. We can quibble about the meaning of whether or not they did or didn't. But like, you know, you get these investigations. They really didn't have anything to stand on if anybody's actually looking at this business model. So they take the penalties as they come because they don't they they don't have anything really to say in defense of themselves. Essentially, right. Well, I think I, there, there's also an implication here. I think that th- this was basically a test case uh, to get these issues right. up up to the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. Up to they, they clearly had one thing to say in their defense. Th- there's there's a part in here in the opinion that I think also spells this out, where it's they they go the SEC brings an enforcement action, it goes before an ALJ, but while that's pending, there is the Supreme Court decision in Lucia, which um, it's that's an appointments clause case it's not really bearing on this but basically the result of that case was they had an opportunity to get a new hearing before a new judge and they said no we're good uh we're- yeah we got this <laughs> like- we got our own thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so right. so it's yeah it's just like it's it's it seems very much like a test case just to present uh these these various constitutional I- issues that they've raised um in, in I- an effort to uh tamper uh or or, or you know uh, bring down the administrative state it- I will take a different position. I don't think it's a test case. I think they were bringing the constitutional issues as the Hail Mary. But the reason I think they didn't take a second hearing is because all they would get out of a second hearing is they'd have to pay their lawyers again, and then they'd be right back here making the constitutional claims. So I think they just figured, you know, we might as well take our losses (laughs) and minimize them and just stick with our constitutional claims. And so they, and then they appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which is interesting because the first time they raised the constitutional claims, they raised the the constitutional claims at the beginning of the prosecution because they wanted an injunction, right? They, they raised them to stop the prosecution from ever happening, and they didn't win, and they appealed that to the D.C. Circuit, and at the injunction phase, they lost in the D.C. Circuit. So second time around, they didn't appeal to the D.C. Circuit. <laughs> they stayed in the Fifth Circuit this time, figuring their odds were better, uh, and that was a much better gamble. Yes. Hey, uh, 
very quickly to circle back to the notion of whether or not this is a test case, I might be able to square this circle because I don't know if you noticed this footnote about who filed amicus briefs in this case. No, I did not. It's oh yeah, the Cato Institute, Philip Goldstein, who is an investor, uh, Mark Cuban, who is funny because I picture him in court wearing like a um, like a fake weathered, really tight T-shirt, but it's one of those <laughs> tuxedo T-shirts. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then there's this guy, Nelson Obis, and Nelson Obis's Wikipedia page, he's this hedge fund guy, and one of his subtitles in his Wikipedia page says, 12-year SEC battle. <laughs> and he's effectively been working on this for, they got exonerated of insider trading, and since the trial, Obis has been an outspoken critic of the SEC and an advocate for policy change. So I do yeah. think that if not directly a test case that there were a lot of people oh sur- no 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 people definitely yeah. jumped on I, I, board i'm with charles on this i think uh i think eventually it became a test case but you look i mean the alj ruled in what 2018 i think right is was the final mm-hmm. determination so that they had enough time to kind of you know coalesce around this and kind of get these guys their cost of labor yeah but yeah. I, these guys were trying to make money off of people with money that's well, right. I, mean, I, I think that's what was saying, going yes, on yes. initially. <laughs> right. A te- we'll get well, our third or the third case we talk about sure. today is a test yeah. case, right? Yeah, Ted yeah. Cruz is yeah, the test. Oh, big yes, test. That's yeah. what yeah, yeah. Exactly. But this this was like opportunistic. And by the way, the Nelson Obis origin story is also the Mark Cuban origin story. <laughs> the reason Mark Cuban filed is because he got accused. I don't I don't remember how it was ultimately resolved, but he got accused of insider trading because he was an investor uh, in like, you know, some small group who the CEO told Cuban that they were going to do a private placement. And Cuban was like, private placement? I don't want you to do a private placement. And then dumped his shares. (laughs) (laughs) And they accused him of insider trading. And he's like, I don't know what... He was really mad. Because he's like, how is that insider trading? I didn't want him to tell me they were doing a pipe. (laughs) I've been telling them not to do one. And then he told me they were doing one. So I got rid of the shares. And I don't know how it was resolved. But they're like, no, that is definitely insider trading. (laughs) Um, And so he's been very mad at the SEC since. So that's what. So all of these people jump on board uh, the Jarkizi train to vindicate their own guilty findings yeah it's it's a, it's a um, rose gallery of people that had run-ins with the sec basically trying to get rid of it right and then the new civil liberties alliance which is uh future people who will have run-ins with the sec if it were to continue right? to exist <laughs> yes so they so they make the constitutional claims now in the fifth circuit right the first one being that uh they have the right to a jury trial and they get a right to a jury trial even though it's a civil case if it is a private right, right? That's the big distinction here mm-hmm. for, for like the in the weeds law nerds is that private rights, uh, they get a jury trial, but public rights, they do not necessarily get a jury trial yeah. in a civil case. Yeah, the S- Seventh Amendment right. in short sense is that if it's a suit that was recognized at common law back at the time of the founding, that you have a right to a jury trial. And so what they argued here is that securities fraud is just, you know, you're plain old fraud. That's there's the, the tort, the tort of fraud and 
you know, being prosecuted for fraudulent activity. It goes back to the founding securities are nothing, you know, new or novel. And so they argue successfully that when the SEC prosecutes, not the right word, because this is all administrative, but basically when the SEC, uh, you know, in-house judges that, yes, they've committed securities fraud, that that is something that they're entitled under the Seventh Amendment to have a jury adjudge the facts of whether or not they were liable, not having an SEC administrative law judge judge the facts. And so this, the, the dissent really picks up on this because, you know, this, this is really, as Charles was saying, the distinction that the Supreme Court's made is between private rights and public rights, public rights being, you know, if, if the U.S. government is enforcing rights as a sovereign um, for the benefit of the public, you know, just uh, that that is considered public rights that Congress can assign to an adjudicatory tribunal as opposed to private rights, things like purely property type rights, contract rights, things like that, things that were recognized at common law, you have this Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. So th- this is an argument, yeah, I, I, I previously hadn't seen this um the way they usually tell the difference is, is there a statute, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Is the government enforcing a statute? And in this case, you will not be surprised to find out that there are a lot of statutes governing securities law, <laughs> right? Whether it's 10b-5 or the Exchange Act or whatever, there's a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, that's how these agencies act, is they have these specific statutes and they go out and enforce those statutes. Right. That's, that's how they operate. Right. What the dissent basically says is that there are plenty of cases that say that it's okay if a statute mimics common law, because once you pass it as a statute, it is now a public right that they are enforcing. And in fact, that is true, or I guess in law, that's true. Like the the disclosure requirements you have around securities, I mean, particularly publicly traded securities, are different than what you'd have just at common law with fraud, right? Yes. You, there would be no right. reason they're to have these even, statutes. Right, they're not even the same. Yeah, they're, and it's it's technical in the ways in which they're different, but you have to do different things in order to trade securities. You're not just bound by common law fraud of the states or you know federal common law or whatever. Yeah, yeah the big prior case on this is from the 80s. It's a case um, involving OSHA. And the occupational safety, which could like, let's see if that exists to 2025. <laughs> well, say the, the, there yeah. I go trying to spell out what OSHA says without having occupational it written down. Occupational anyway, health and safety administration. Safety. Yeah, I'm thinking of the the act. Uh, Charles, cut that, cut oh, that, cut that. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but. Um, so the, the the big prior Supreme Court case from the 1980s uh, on this topic, Atlas Roofing. This is about OSHA, and a similar challenge was brought, saying that when OSHA, which you know enforces rules and regulations for governing a safe workplace, they made the same claims there that this there, there should be a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial when OSHA tries to enforce their standards. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, nope, these are public rights, not private rights. OSHA's you know creature of statute and so it's a public rights case and and that was it and you know i I would bet that and i guess in that case they were probably arguing that the osha rights were similar to like torts yeah it would be negligence or like injury yeah Yeah, like you know in in ye old england in the 17th century i'll bet you know if you're working at the mill and your hand gets crushed you probably had a suit at common law back in ye old england you know osha is really no different You'd lose, and they'd crush the rest of you next to your hand. Yeah, that's what you get for wasting their time. Exactly. Especially as a peasant. That was, I mean, that was the penalty for losing. That was called the English rule. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the the law has long understood that these statutory schemes are different from common law, right? It's not creating a new federal common law. It's creating new statutory schemes that agencies 
enforce and, and do the day-to-day work on. Right. So the first so the first thing they give them is you should have had a jury, and since you didn't, it's gone. And I have seen, by the way, some commentary that is that doesn't hate this part of the law so much. They're like, well, it's a million dollar fine in an industry bar, and even if precedent says this, making the public law private law distinction, people who are very pro uh, juries, um, and I'm not against juries, but people who, you know, are very into like the Seventh Amendment being expansive, don't hate this part of the law, right? Matt mm-hmm. Levine, who's a Bloomberg writer who I love, and some other people. I think, I think the next case would, that could have benefited from a jury trial, right? Patel yes. versus uh, whoever's uh, yeah, yeah, I think now. so. <laughs> I think so. Um, right. So they like that, but my objection to that is, I don't think juries are necessary to due process in a broadly existential way, and it is sort of a constitutional quirk that you'd be cramming this into a jury requirement, and so I'm not super sympathetic to it because I hate that kind of constitutional uh, fetishization. It, it also <laughs> really depends on, I think, the agency because, you know, this is the SEC right. that's that's at play here. You know, there are other regulatory schemes where it might make more sense to have an administrative law judge who is highly skilled in the actual technical area as opposed to yeah. taking a highly technical question to a jury, to a judge facts. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the yeah. SEC today, but uh, it's, this, 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 what this really does is this, this significantly increases the burden, I would think, uh, for administrative agencies who now, rather than relying on in-house adjudicators in, in cases that, you know, if there's an argument that it was a claim that was existed at the time of common law, that now you have to pool a jury and you have to take it before a jury rather than leaving yeah. it in house. Right. I I think I think it, it you know there are some agencies like immigration where the proceedings really kind of resemble criminal proceedings and there's issues of life and liberty at stake and maybe a jury makes sense in those limited circumstances. There are Absolutely. other ones like the SEC where just an entire industry is built around it, right? Like the way that these regulations kind of filter down into the industry, everybody knows the score the second an action is initiated, right? And so, you know, there's some stuff at the margins where you're going to play around and kind of show that something went one way or the other. But everybody knows what you're looking for at the start because everybody's an expert who's dealing in this world. It's, It's just such a limited world that if you add a jury to this, it just it totally throws so much more administrative costs into everything that really the only effect is that there's less stuff brought because the costs are so high. Though, I mean, to and to the extent that I'm a little sympathetic in a case like this where it's like a million dollars. I mean, this is not a sympathetic thing, case. But. Right, right. No, 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 no. Sympathetic to the idea of a case involving a million right, dollar right, penalty. Yeah. I'm much more sympathetic in the immigration context, and they will never get right. a that, that will never happen. And no one Zero. is, there are immigration lawyers in the nonprofit sphere, but like, there are not immigration firms, right? Like, not doing deportation defense. Like, that stuff is not done right. by experts ever. It's done by 25-year-olds on both sides of the equation, essentially. There's maybe some DHS lifers, but it, there are, it's, not, yeah. it's not at all the same as the SEC or OSHA or any of those other agencies that have like experts on both sides of the equation doing everything. It's, it's a totally different yeah. world. When you think about, think about the killer whale cake. 
the the killer whale case that uh that Kavanaugh dissented in where um OSHA fined SeaWorld for letting uh till it uh it wasn't till it maybe no it was it was Tillicum that one killed uh, a lot killed of people the trainer so, so that, <laughs> yeah that guy got a body count yeah <laughs> yeah um right. right so so Tillicum kills the trainer and they were fined like 40 grand is that a jury trial case right for yeah, telling I mean, like half there's always gonna half be, yeah. a day's half a day's take at SeaWorld. <laughs> Probably just the bothered water water sales for one day. Yeah. 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 Just the you know, like half a day of, you know, nothing. And that now maybe is an article is like a Seventh Amendment case. That's a little nuts. And but- and the thing I don't get, just just to interject, like it's usually in these companies' interest to just go through the administrative route, right? Like they pay the fine. I mean, the SeaWorld example is a great example where, like, they just pay that 40K and that's it. They don't have to, like, go through a whole jury trial to do that. And it's like the only people really yeah. getting rich off of that are lawyers at that point. <laughs> right. Which, which now that you mention it, uh, is a point in its yeah. favor. Yeah, Elon Musk, you got four lawyers here who can. <laughs> but real, real quick, before we just jump into the, the second constitutional argument, I just, I, I have to point out, did you guys see the 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 Ronald Reagan reference in this portion of the yeah. opinion. Is there just like an ASCII art Ronald Reagan on like page 17, <laughs> just like taking up the whole page, like a <laughs> fucking game facts guide. You know, it's, it's the, the, the majority opinion when they're characterizing the dissent, they, they characterize the dissent as essentially arguing that, well, if the federal government is the one who's bringing the action, then the dissent says there's never needs to be a jury trial. And so uh, it says, uh, the uh, where is this? When the federal government sues, no jury is required. This is perhaps a runner-up in the competition for the nine most terrifying words in the English language. And then there's a footnote to the Reagan speech of "I'm here from the government and I'm here to help." So I mean, I think that just that that'll, that making its way into the the majority opinion here. I think that's really all you need yeah. to know of of where this is coming from. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of telling turns of phrase in this opinion. A mention of the public as the fountainhead from which these rights these rights come. That one uh, that one perked my ears up. The Reagan thing, obviously, but the Reagan thing is funny because it reminds me of something stylistically that I think is really cute about this opinion. And it's like um, there's this movie with Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves where they're like both in the same house two years apart and they're sending each other love letters like between the two different times or whatever. And that's basically the interaction that the opinion and the dissent have in this case where they're like sniping at each other through like different parts of both opinions in a way that I've like in a very uh, metatextual way where they're constantly mad at each other. And it's really fun. to it's, it's funny to read. And that's where the Reagan thing comes in because they're just like sniping at the dissent, like in, just in the in the body, right in the middle of the opinion. It's fun. And I think it's very funny because I don't think those nine words are a quote from the dissent. No. Yeah, yeah, it's a citation from one of the cases, and they cite it in the dissent, and then they get mad that they cited it in the opinion, and then they make that snide <laughs> comment. It's great. No, that is good. That is good. And it's interesting, because I think these guys uh, tr- generally prefer 14. <laughs> and then that's not enough. They're like, okay, maybe you don't buy uh, the jury trial thing. We don't care if you do or don't, because it's enough, but... We're also going to say that this was a, this is a non-delegation case. Congress can't delegate this the decision 
on where to bring the case to the SEC. Congress said, you can bring this in court or you can bring this in an internal enforcement action. And the Fifth Circuit's like, look, you can tell them to bring it as an enforcement action or you can tell them to bring it in court. But if you tell them that they get to choose, no way, man. Yeah. This is <laughs> that's that's too much. Yeah, I mean, so n- non-delegation is I mean, it's a big issue in administrative law right now. And, you know, the non-delegation doctrine, as Charles said, is, is when Congress authorizes regulatory agencies to enforce statutory schemes, they have to court has said they have to Congress has to give them an intelligible principle by which to act. They can't just hand it over to the agency without any sort of principle by which they should they should act. And going back to, to Patrick's point about how, you know, the, the majority and the dissent throughout this case are talking to one another, like this part of the dissent I, th- I thought was great because, the, you know, the, the dissent here just really like they just throw up their hands and they just they basically say, I don't know that anyone's ever actually argued this before. <laughs> this idea <laughs> that when Congress gives an agency a choice of which forum to bring an enforcement action, that that is the delegation of legislative power to the agency. Um, and, and therefore, it's unconstitutional to give the agency the choice. So the, the, the dissent is like, we can't. I, I can't find anything <laughs> that I could even cite to for this proposition. So, like, you know, the, I mean, the, the argument against this is is the idea that this is just prosecutorial discretion, um, and and that's generally seen as you know part and parcel to the executive function of regulatory agencies. Right. They get to decide how to use their enforcement resources, when to bring suit, what what you know what. Uh, statutes or regulations they want to bring enforcement actions under it's like that's that's all within the purview of the decision of whether or not to enforce and and the government here argued that this this idea of like we get to choose what form to bring it in that that you know that seems part and parcel to this idea of we get to choose how to enforce the statutory and regulatory scheme and and the the way that this is characterized as you know this is a legislative decision of which form to bring it in like i, I read this and i had to re- i had to read this portion of the opinion three or four times because i've i've never heard any any argument like this before in a non-delegation context yeah i mean i think just like law before that generally considered that stuff as as article 1 powers of an executive branch and that's that's why it was never really discussed in any context before this but now this this choice of form is like suddenly an article 2 power which is like crazy they, the reason it's never been heard before is because the Fifth Circuit bootstrapped it. And the way they bootstrapped it is they used their first finding to create the second yeah. finding. Right? The first finding is you have a right to a jury trial. And so if you have a right to a jury trial, then choosing between a jury forum and a non-jury forum is a problem. Yeah. Right. Right. And so and so until someone announced that this kind of case requires a jury, there was never any there was never anything to the discretion because no one considered it a jury issue in the first place. They it's just a due process issue in either case. And the courts had consistently held that due process doesn't require a jury in this context. And if due process doesn't require a jury, then it doesn't matter which form. And so you're right, the dissent's just like this is stupid. This is stupid and you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and was correct. And then the and then the third one is just a really, really dumb attack on the Merit Systems Protection Board and any uh, civil protection of employees. 
they bend over backwards to try and describe this like two tiered regime of who can get fired for cause under what reasons and try to build this hierarchy. And that's another one that the dissent just like swats at like, nope, that's stupid. Here's a bunch of reasons that's stupid. So that's stupid. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, this this idea of of uh, protection from removal, um, you know, th- this this is all part of you know, there's a lot of momentum building right now. of The idea of the unitary executive that right, that the president oversees the entire executive branch. The president should be able to fire all of his principals at will or file or, or fire other officers at will. Um, in order to ensure that you know the president is accountable to the executive branch, and this is just, I think, uh, this decision. It's another line in these cases that takes an extreme skepticism to any executive branch officials here, being SEC ALJs who have protection from you know at will removal if if you know those in the executive branch don't like the decisions they're making. You know, it's it's one thing to right. say that executive branch officials who have protection from removal. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if, if it's a judge, if, if the argument is that a judge um, should have to you know, think twice about their decision making, lest they be fired uh, for the decisions that they make. I mean, even if you want to couch this as, as the Fifth Circuit does, this idea of you know, accountability in the executive branch, I would have to think that that creates enormous due process considerations. If judges uh, all of a sudden are, you know, fireable at will for the decisions that they make, um, particularly when the government is a party to the litigation, it's it's a uh, it's a really dangerous path. I think that you know that we're going down uh, with with this executive branch jurisprudence. It's a dangerous path if you believe the administrative state should exist in any form. I guess if you don't, <laughs> yeah. it's maybe less dangerous. But yeah, we got to hear right. both sides on this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have that like. I think the two things that drive me crazy about this part of the opinion, number one, is that they compare the ALJ, uh, who had an unconscionable two-level uh, above him, right? The, the judge gets a good cause protections from the Merit Systems Protections Board, and then the commissioner of the agency, there are two levels, and they analogize that guy to Cordray who was the head of the Consumer Finance Protection Board. (laughs) Like, that's how they got there. That these, like, already found in, I think it was uh, Celia Law Mm -hmm. or Lucia, right? I keep forgetting which one it is. Yeah, Celia Law, they were like, they're inferior officers. And so now this inferior officer is being analogized to the head of an agency as as requiring removal. That's number one. And number two... This whole idea of non-delegation, having this case appear in the same context as a non-delegation case, just drives me crazy because a bunch of life-tenured federal judges are complaining about the insulation of ALJs from accountability. And it's like someone who's far less accountable than you. How how do you, as a federal judge, get to make a decision about how the two branches that actually are accountable allocate their work to each other as like an outsider about like, how do you, the least accountable person in the universe, have the cojones to actually talk about accountability in this case? I'm sure that will get a lot better once it's up on the Supreme Court. So. <laughs> yeah.
All right, so we're back, and I guess we will move on to our second case. Our second case is Patel versus Garland. Tim, you want to take the lead on this one? Sure. So um, Patel versus Garland is an immigration case. In the 1990s, he, uh, with his wife, entered the United States without status. And that, I mean, that basically means they entered here legally. Obviously, immigration law doesn't look you know, very good on that. Uh, however, you are eligible to apply for what's called adjustment of status. And that just means that, you know, you came here, you're in the United States, but you want to become a legal permanent resident. You, you might have gotten status some other way and you're you're looking for a green card. And so getting a green card, like a lot of immigration law requires two things. So there are certain things that will make you completely ineligible, right? If you're a child molester or you've killed somebody you're not going to be eligible for a green card. But there's also, uh, you know, certain things, I mean, specifically like good moral character that you've had to have exhibited in the last five years that makes you eligible to get a green card in the first place. He got he got his green card through the agency, I believe. But while his yeah, application... provisionally. Right, provisionally. So he, he applied through USCIS, the normal way, U.S. United States uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services. But while he was applying, and that was with Department of Homeland Security at the time, he was applying for that, and he renewed his Georgia's driver's license. He supposedly accidentally, well, you know, that's that's a question of fact, but supposedly accidentally marked that he was a U.S. citizen as he renewed his Georgia's driver's license and let the state of Georgia know that he was a citizen. And so, despite the fact that he actually received no benefit from saying that he would have been a citizen under Georgia law, uh, he was denied adjustment of status and put in deportation proceedings because he illegally claimed to be a citizen. One of the requirements to adjusting your status to being a legal permanent resident is that you you had to have never claimed falsely for the benefit to be a citizen of the United States. And so he appealed to that. He appealed to the immigration judge, and he basically told the immigration judge, "Look, this this claim to be a citizen." was not intentional i didn't i didn't mean to do that and the judge didn't believe and so as a result he was basically denied his adjustment of status in order to leave the country uh this got up to the supreme court and in a i believe it's a 5-4 decision yeah 5-4 decision they said that mr patel had to leave the country Yep. This isn't even a constitutional case right this is just a statutory case right and so yeah and, and so statutorily uh, judges are not allowed to review any judgment regarding the granting of relief in findings. Right. right. And so right. the question... Con- yeah, Congress Congress passed a jurisdiction stripping law. Right. And to limit the way, in the same way that EDPA keeps courts from hearing certain death penalty appeals, they passed a different jurisdiction stripping law to keep courts from hearing certain categories of immigration appeals. Right. And, and, and so it just says any judgment regarding the granting of relief. And so the question was, does this mean that courts cannot review factual findings within immigration law, or are they not allowed to um, review the discretionary findings of immigration? And the, the court came down here in the 5-4 decision saying that no factual decision by an immigration judge can be reviewed by a court of law. Right. To me, the the weirdest part of this case, between Barrett wrote the majority and Gorsuch wrote the dissent, is they present the facts in ways that seem entirely different, right? When I was reading Barrett's opinion, it gets to a certain point where it looks like Patel is just fucked, 
right? Because he applied for adjustment of status. And then while his application was pending is when he checked the box saying he was a citizen. So it's not like one of those cases where they dug out a jaywalking ticket from 30 years ago. Yeah. Like he stepped on this rake while his application was pending. Yeah. And so you read that and you're like, oh, that's not a great fact. And then at the hearing, he's like, well, it's an, you know, it's an accident and it didn't mean anything because I also included my green card number. And then they looked at the application and he didn't include his green card right. number. It's a really weird case. I think a lot of these cases, what you see is people who apply for a driver's license and get automatically registered to vote, right? That's a much bigger issue in immigration law is people who live in a state that because they're, you know, in a blue, crunchy, hippie state, they get a regular driver's license. Well, also in those states, you tend to get registered to vote when you apply for a driver's license. So people Georgia? are legally registering to vote because they're not citizens. Is it even remotely possible that Georgia has a motor no, voter no, law? No, not at all. So, so yeah, this is a, it's a really weird case because it's like, well, why would you know? Normally, that's normally that's how that happens, right? Is that these people have to go through right. like years and years of just being like, it was an accident, like you know, no, no fault of my own. Obviously, not at, at issue at Georgia, but also he would have had no motive really to have done that it, it's a box well, on a fucking yeah. drive, you know. I think I think it's I think it's interesting let's let's just I, I just sort of want to walk through this a little right so right. so now it turns out that so the immigration judge looks at the actual application and it's like well actually you didn't include your green card number and so now the immigration judge just thinks well, first the uscis official and then the immigration judge just thinks he is a liar which is a separate problem but the main problem is that they just make a mistake of law right they think that under georgia law you have to either be a citizen or a permanent resident to get a driver's license yeah and if you're not a citizen or a permanent resident, you can't get a driver's license. And so that was his motive for checking the box. And it might even have been his motive for checking the box. He could have made the same mistake too. But it turns out that everyone is wrong. And what's actually true is that if you have a provisional green card like Patel did, right, that's right. good enough. And that's, that's the thing is you get to Gorsuch's opinion and Gorsuch makes perfectly clear that you can get a driver's license. Yeah, because they're, they're functionally the same as green cards. It's possible that a state, I guess, could say that conditional green cards are not allowed. Right. For the most part, there would be no way really to figure it. It says that there's conditions on the green card, but they, they're, they're official looking documents. There would be no reason yeah. really to ever differentiate between the two. Right. But the judge did, right? The ALJ distinguished. The immigration yeah. judge did distinguish. And the immigration judge said, because of that, you can't possibly get discretionary review. Like, this right. wasn't a discretionary rejection. They yeah. made a mistake of law, which it was, it was a mistake and, of fact. And it is because they were... a mistake. Well, it's a little different, because they did claim to be a citizen, right? And that's a little different than claiming to have a different status for a benefit of a state. You can't right. claim to yeah. be a citizen, which right. is... And that's, that's 
That's a tricky... Well, no, 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 no. Because what it says is, who falsely represents himself to be a citizen for any purpose or benefit under state or federal law. So it's conditioned on there being a benefit. Yeah, okay. Right? And so if it's not necessary to claim a benefit, then the judge shouldn't have disqualified the application at step one, right? Because that's certainly what happened with Georgia. Georgia originally was going to prosecute him for the mistake, but then once they realized he had a provisional green card, they realized they couldn't prosecute him. Right. Because there would be no benefit under Georgia law to lie. And and, and, and the case law has actually, yeah, now that you mentioned it, it is, it is on that. And the, the case law has hinged on there being a benefit. So if you just, if you yeah. just say you're a citizen to a policeman, for example, and it's something that would have been illegal either way, you usually... You know, you have to disclose that on your application or something, but you usually are not subject to the bar. Right. If I'm um, if I'm reading Charles's point here correctly, it's not so much that there's this big discrepancy in the fact pattern. It's that it's incredibly glaring that those like mitigating facts don't appear in the majority opinion. And it's not until you get to the dissent that you're like, oh, man, like, right. Right. That's the big thing is that they make it seem like Patel is this completely like bloodless liar (laughs) who checks a box and then lies about having included his green card number. And like he keeps getting caught by the, you know, clever immigration cops in all of his lies to Georgia. And then you read Gorsuch's opinion and Gorsuch is like, none of these lies mattered as a matter of the law on whether he was eligible, right? Because right. Gorsuch, like, and so this is where you get the big split between them, not on the facts, but on the law, is that the, the jurisdiction stripping is for any judgment granting, any judgment regarding the granting of relief. And so Barrett says that means everything, soup to nuts, every decision an immigration official makes is immune from review. And Gorsuch says, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. What the review is, is two steps. Step one, are you eligible for discretionary review? And then if you are eligible for step one, step two is an exercise of discretion because it's a matter of grace and the attorney general delegating the authority to the immigration judge doesn't have to let you in even if you're eligible. And it's that judgment that ju- that judges, right. that federal judges can't review. And so Gorsuch's problem is that the judge, the ALJ, the immigration judge, fucked the first part up. Yeah, in, in essence, they aired, they aired in law, right? And, and I looked right. it up. I, I just want to make sure. Yeah, a false claim to U.S. citizenship has three elements. You had to make a representation of U.S. citizenship. It has to be a false representation. And it has to be a purpose or benefit under INA or any federal or state law. There was The third element is not there. And that that right. is crucial. That's crucial right. to being ineligible. And if you yes. if you, and if you actually can't pass that, then you're eligible. You're eligible for not just discretionary relief. You might just be eligible. You might actually just be entitled to adjustment of status or some right. other. Though I think in this case, not 
right? Like he is applying in a situation where he's asking for discretionary relief. But Gorsuch's problem is that they didn't even get to the discretion part. Right. They knocked Patel out at phase one because they misunderstood Georgia law. Right. And so Patel doesn't think it matters. I mean, Patel, Barrett doesn't think it matters. Barrett is like, everything is out. And so no matter how bad a mistake the immigration judge makes, it's forever unreviewable. And of course, that drives Gorsuch crazy because he never wants an administrative agency to do anything that's unreviewable. Yeah, I'll be honest, like I was reading the majority opinion here and I just stopped halfway through. It was it was too tortured to reach the conclusion, Charles, that you're describing, because I knew there was a Gorsuch dissent. And so I just flipped to that because just from reading the first few pages of this, I knew that Gorsuch would be making the argument that I thought was obvious, that the statute says any judgment regarding the granting of relief. And what the majority opinion is saying, or interprets the statute, is they just mean, well, any judgment means any judgment. Any judgment, including, you know, factual findings of whether or not this person was telling the truth, uh, you know, made by the ALJ when he checked the box. And, And Gorsuch, you know, immediately says, if that's what Congress meant, they would have just said any judgment, period. End of sentence. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have gone on in the statute to say any judgment regarding the granting of relief. Right? Because it, right. You know, it was it wasn't a judgment granting relief when an ALJ decided whether or not he was lying about checking the box. And so yeah, I just I I couldn't even make it all the way through this because it seemed so obvious from the beginning, and I knew that if I just flipped to the Gorsuch dissent, he would make the point because you know Gorsuch for you know for everything that you know he he writes and and the views that he holds, um, his adherence to textualism it does you know he does land in the right spots every now and then. We saw it in Bostock. It's, it's better than Scalia's, I think. In some yeah, we we saw it in Bostock. We saw it in um uh, what was the, the Oklahoma. Oklahoma case? Right, yeah, right. He, he he ends up in the right places just by yeah, reading the statute yeah. sometimes. And this was another. He read Settlers by Jay Sakai and was like, "That's right." <laughs> And I mean, and then the last thing that Barrett says, which is completely crazy, is Gorsuch uh, basically is like, there's no way that Congress wanted to immunize the dumbest ALJ from making the stupidest factual error in the most malicious possible way. And Barrett's like, I don't know, maybe they did. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's reasonably likely that Congress actually wanted to give some person in a windowless office (laughs) the authority to just arbitrarily make factual errors that get people deported. It's important to note, like, relief, immigration relief includes, like, the Convention Against Torture and, like, basic principles of, like, asylee, like, international law that are, like... Uh, obligations that the United States has, not just to itself, but like basically to the world. And to think that those factual determinations of like, will this person die if they go back is, is just not reviewable is like totally crazy. Like that's totally a factual determination and totally can get reviewed through the, through the board of immigration appeals or, or, you know, whatever fashion that might exist to do so or now it's board of immigration appeals. And then up to the, the, the circuit court. But to think that, like, the determination of somebody's life and death situation is just not reviewable, it's like, totally. Yeah. What's crazy to me is I feel like this case feels like one of those habeas cases where you can tell that 
you know, when the prisoner in a very unlikely event wins, they're just going to lose on remand anyway. Sure. Right? Where they're like, yeah, we're going to make another trial, but after having read the facts, I figure you're probably going to be convicted even with this evidence thrown out. Right? If you think about how Gorsuch sees this case... Gorsuch is like, look, she made a mistake of law at step one, so she should have allowed Patel to proceed to step two, right? She should have understood that there was no benefit. But even if you get to step two, this immigration judge who thinks Patel is a liar could have just denied him relief at step two without blowing the first part. Patel doesn't even necessarily win because this immigration judge could find that he lacks the moral character and she doesn't want to grant discretion. And if she does that, the the Bureau of Immigration Appeals probably uphold, the Board of Immigration Appeals upholds it and federal courts couldn't touch it. And so he's still not going to win, but at least the structure of administrative appeals isn't completely ruined by a dumb overreading of the statute, right? right? Because Gorsuch talks about that too. There's a reason Congress passed this law. And Congress passed this law because we kept mucking around in discretionary review uh findings. And they're like, stop that. We don't want we want the attorney general to exercise discretion. And once the attorney general exercises delegated discretion, we don't want the courts full of these cases. But you know what? Like, I think in practice, that's how it should go, right? Like, if the judge actually thinks something's up, and obviously the judge is going to have the, the, the whole transcript. Oh, of yeah. It. And, and, and Biden passed, he, he reinstated the Obama era principles of like, if this person's been living here a long time, if they haven't committed an actual crime, if they're not a threat to national security, they shouldn't be deported. Like, he could have applied for prosecutorial discretion if he was allowed to move on that on that position, you know what I mean? Right. And that- though, though I will say, I think one of the funny things about this is all of that took place under Trump, right? Right. Like, it yeah. doesn't hit he, the he 11th have circuit. Gotten, yeah, this would not have been an issue if it happened five years later, because he would have just apply for prosecutorial discretion and they would have thrown out his case because this is a waste of agency resources, right? Like nobody gives yeah. a shit if this guy continues to live here. He's has a family, he's paying taxes. Like he's basically a citizen already. Like it doesn't Yeah, matter. this this case is Patel versus Garland. Neither of those parties want this person to leave the country. No, they had and to yet, appoint yeah. a special <laughs> amicus. It was some lady, I forget her name, but she she, she Her name is uh, her name is Taylor A. R. Meehan. Yeah, and that's notable because right next to that, I wrote immigration law parentheses Taylor's version because they just like go with hers over the. <laughs> they do, they do, they literally in the whole. They're just like, yeah, she was right. It's whatever, yeah, whatever it's she just, said. That's cool. Like, imagine you're you're a member of the Supreme Court bar. You get a phone call and they say, "Hey, there's this immigration case. It's this guy who's lived here for thirty years. <laughs> you just decide it." Uh, yeah, yeah. He he doesn't want to leave. Obviously, <laughs> uh, the government doesn't want to kick him out. Um, but. SCOTUS needs someone to argue that this man needs to leave the country. <laughs> and <Yeah>. that's <laughs> and that and that's that's the that's that's the amicus uh case that you get handed. And they do they do explicitly uh, just adopt that. They're just like, yeah, she's right. Yeah. She, whatever she well, said yeah. is cool. It's which is wild because they like go through a pretty relentless series of parsing the other two while yeah. like really, really taking great pains to point out how stupid they think both those are. Right. Before they're like, yeah, but then there's this uh, real one by this other person. That's the actual one that we're gonna yeah, do. Tara, my boy, Tara. 
she's she's got it on lock. And you can even see that in the pattern, right? Under Trump, they were trying as hard as possible to yeah. kick him out, right? And Patel filed for cert, and then Trump lost the election. <laughs> and Biden comes in, and while cert is pending, Trump loses, and Biden's like, we don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> we actually want to confess error and just leave the case and let Patel in uh, and not completely screw up administrative law forever. Well, if this was the uh, Fifth Circuit, Biden could have just fired the judge. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Supreme Court's like, we've already read the briefs. <laughs> so, so we're going to appoint someone else to kick yeah. him out of the totally country. Totally random. Like, it, 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 and, you know, I mean, look, we're, uh, I'm Mexican, but everyone else is a white guy. Like, we were not going to do the identity politics stuff, but it's like, not an immigrant, not somebody who has to deal, I mean, she, she clerked for Scalia, I'm sure he has, she has a lot of experience in immigration law, but it's like, not somebody who has to deal with this stuff, like, day to day, and has to, like, live the reality of, like, adjusting for status, and, like, waiting for these fucking decisions to come down. Do you know how mad it makes me that I have to just, like, really, you know, hand it to Gorsuch? Well, he already, like I said, he already ceded, two, like, two pods in 4,000 kilometers you, of land to, to Oklahoma natives, so... I've had yeah. to hand it to him for that. Like that, that is like the ultimate falling yeah. under sword. Just like you know what, the U.S. is not even sovereign territory here. Fuck you. I, I get to land. I get to only half hand it to Gorsuch on uh, Bostock though, because in Bostock he sort of slipped in a poison. Yeah, he did. That he if did. any that if anyone uh, has any religious objection to anything he said, they can ignore it. Yeah, Gorsuch clearly hates this because he wants to be able to. Bigfoot administrative agency. Yeah. But again, like, like, fine. Like, maybe the president every four years, like, won't let people stay here. But like, that is the reality more or less anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, 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 the actual reality is that Mr. Patel, like, had an equity in having legal permanent residency, right? Like, oh, could, I think that's he could true. work here, you know, like, ultimately, his family could go back with him to India or whatever, but they would, they would all have to sacrifice so much money year after year, not working in the United States. That's, that's yeah. really and what's I mean, at issue here. His wife didn't even apply independently. Yeah. His wife might have been able to apply right. independently. Exactly. But she applied as an adjunct to his application, and so she's got to go too. Yeah. But, I mean, like, really what's at issue here is just, like, a loss of equity of, like, these people cannot work legally here in the United States. And and immigration law is just not going to understand that. But we have, like, the, the president can understand that and they can enforce the laws in ways that are consistent with that and that people that have worked here for many years can continue to live here. And maybe they won't, but, you know, maybe they will like they are now. And, and that we should allow that to happen to the extent that it's possible. Because that's how this country works. Like, there's, there's people working and living here for decades, and, and that's, they got to keep doing that. And I mean, and that's sort of the point that I was about to make, is that I think those three, the three liberals on the court who joined Gorsuch, I think that was their agenda. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, like, I don't, because in general, they like deference to agencies. Right. And I think they joined Gorsuch on this because they found the results so inequitable. But again, and I, they didn't, and they didn't write separately to sort of put a burr under Gorsuch's saddle because he was so clearly right. Because he even tacitly understands the equities yeah, too, exactly. Because yeah. he's very sympathetic to Patel getting screwed by this very obvious mistake of Georgia law. No, this was a very deranging majority opinion. I got to tell you. 
they're I think they're gonna just get more increasing just week oh there's going. no question um yeah, you could feel it there was there were definitely just parts where she was just freestyling real hard. It kind of sucks for Scalia that he's dead now that he cannot just go like full just like you know drudge reporter commenter. I think this would have been a real problem for Scalia because I think he'd have been very sympathetic to Gorsuch's reading of the statute, but he also would have been driving Patel to the airport. (laughs) So the third case we're going to do is Federal Elections Commission versus Cruz, uh, which is a case that Cruz very openly set up on purpose, right? Because what the federal election law limit allows you to loan unlimited, unlimited amounts of money to your own campaign. And you can get those unlimited loans paid back with like two caveats. Number one, you got to move fast. They have to pay you back within 20 days of election day or the payback is limited uh, specifically, you can't use more than $250,000 that you raised after Election Day to pay yourself back. You can use money to pay back anyone else, but you can't pay yourself back more than $250,000 raised after Election Day. And so Ted Cruz sets this case up by loaning his campaign and then intentionally waiting 20 days to have the campaign pay him back. So the campaign maxes out what they can give him, which is $250,000. And so now he's got $10,000 unpaid loan that the campaign can't pay him back for. And so he has standing. The campaign now has standing to sue the FEC. Perfect constitutional nerd shit. Yes. It would have been funnier if he managed to make it $250,001. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was wondering how he landed on two hundred sixty because like the whole point of this is that I'm potentially on the hook for any amount over two fifty. I'm wondering how he landed on like two sixty. He probably thought he could spend $10,000. Yeah, I mean, that's it. pocket change. Yeah. But yeah, it, it there are definitely like more mean spirited numbers he could have picked, mm-hmm. like specifically right. to to like nag at us. But uh, so <laughs> yeah. I guess thanks Ted Cruz for that. I guess. So right, so they can't pay. They can't pay him back. They bring the case, and he. I think does he win below or lose below? I think he loses. Uh, below, but now I need to scroll back. No, he wins below. The fact that he won above scrambled my brain, so it's like, I don't even remember what the lower holdings were. (laughs) Right? Right. And so, I guess what's maddening here is that, and this is, uh, this is Roberts writing this time, right? Who has never met, uh, campaign finance law he liked. Roberts looks at this, and the statute, which is clearly directed to bribes or the appearance of bribes, and says, this is too much like regular campaign finance for it to really be a bribe. And even if it's a bribe, it's not that big a bribe. (laughs) Thanks to the system that I've set up over the past 20 years. Yeah. And even even if uh, you think this appears like corruption... 
I don't think it appears like corruption. <laughs> and so it doesn't even have the appearance of corruption. And so Congress can't pass this law and he rules that it's invalid. <laughs> it is it is the most pro-bribe opinion I think any judge has ever written and then signed their own name to. The, yeah, the, Kagan really gets at this in the dissent, but the, the gist of this decision is that you now have a constitutional right to have others refund you for speech that you've made. Specifically, you have a constitutional right to solicit bribes. <laughs> right. Right. You're allowed, you are allowed to fundraise after the campaign once you've won to retire campaign debt because you spent too much on advertising, more than you took in. And now that you've won, you can retire those loans, yeah. even if they're yours. Well, we've seen a steady progression from uh, speech is speech. And then we got to the, the fun era where money was speech. And now we're getting to the point where getting paid back is speech, which is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of those, I think it's in line with like, U.S. jurisprudence, right? But only because corruption is functionally legal in this country. Yeah, like right. It's one of those like, wow, we have such low corruption in this country. It's like, gee, I wonder why. I will admit that I want to be bribed is speech. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> right. true. I can't argue with that. Yeah, yeah the time and, and so Roberts goes through all of this rigmarole to say that even he's like, look, it's not that much. You can only give twenty nine hundred. That's the first thing he says, is you can only, you're limited by f campaign finance law to giving 2900 That's a pretty so small bag really... of money with a dollar sign on it, $2,900. Yeah, I mean, how much, <laughs> how much senator can you buy for 3000 bucks? is like an actual paragraph in a Supreme Court opinion. Well, I mean, think about how inflation is now. Yeah, I was going to say, he's just, he's just doing <laughs> Let's Go Brandon in his... Uh, right. Thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, Kagan is like, there are a lot of cases, actually, where yeah. if you call someone up and say, give me $3,000, you can get a no-bid contract. <laughs> I will say that um, as the resident stupid person on this podcast, Kagan's dissent is written more towards a layperson than a lot of dissents I've ever seen. A lot like, of people, just... I feel like, say Kagan is the new Scalia of, like, writing towards people who, do, like... They're the easy to understand opinions. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's right. Yeah, I, this. I mean, this is a change up down the middle. Yeah, I mean, she she goes in so hard and just steadily on these on the most like, hey, look, this is common sense. Check out how this works. Like it, it's really right. funny. Because I mean, what Kagan is doing, paragraph after after paragraph, is explaining what a bribe is. Yeah. Right. I mean, one of the examples she gives is there's a footnote that there's an FEC ruling that not only can you loan your campaign money, but you can charge your campaign interest. And so she footnotes a case where a Democratic congresswoman from Connecticut, I looked it up. I don't remember her name anymore because I closed the tab. Um, but a Democratic congresswoman from Connecticut loaned her campaign money at 18% interest <laughs> and was paid back three times the amount of the loan. Now, here's the thing. That would be a violation of trust fiduciary rules, which would require a Seventh Amendment trial now. <laughs> if the circuit court goes through. 
if only it were even remotely illegal. Yeah, the FEC said that was fine. <laughs> and so then she could get on the phone and like ask people to pay her back, but not so fast because the VIG is running. <laughs> yeah, I think Kagan spends like three pages fully fully supported with citations for the proposition that if you loan someone money and then someone pays you back, you now have more money. <laughs> and that is the right. crux of a large portion of her dissent. This person loaned money and now someone is giving them money. That means they have money again. <laughs> right. And that's and she has to do that because Roberts took the other position. Right. <laughs> Somehow. Ro- Roberts took the position that if you make a loan and then get paid back, you're back where you started. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like Zeno's and paradox. Like, wait a money. second, wait a second, wait a second. That's not how it works. <laughs> when you make the loan, you're already worse off. You don't get to start all the way at the beginning. You start with being worse off, and then you get better off. He's just anticipating where we have a Judeo-Christian value society that prohibits usury and all this. That's all that's going on. <laughs> After Roe v. Wade, we're getting rid of usury, so... I'm going to try Roberts's theory with my mortgage lender on the next right. month. It's like, what, what do you mean? Like, if I'm giving you money for the, like, you already bought the house, man. Like, what do you need the money back for? <laughs> <laughs> at just the end of the day, right? at the end of the day, it's my house. What do you need the money for? I'm trying to find all of the ways that Roberts tries to argue that money isn't. Actually, this, the loan was not securitized at all, right? Like, there was no collateral that, like, the campaign... Oh, no. He's yeah, no, it doesn't appear so at all. No. Yeah. So. No, he's just SOL 10 grand. That would be an interesting opposite test case where... Right, where the where the Ted Cruz for Senate campaign tries to foreclose on his house. Yeah, yeah you're, exactly. you're collateralized <laughs> yeah, campaign loan. So I did, I did enjoy... I did enjoy greatly the, the part of the opinion where Roberts goes into detail about how Congress... They're burdening speech when they pass this law, and they haven't adequately justified it. There's not like a legislative record that this was really necessary in order to you know, stop corruption or prevent bribes. And then within the same breath, there's a portion of the opinion that says, uh, you know, in any event, uh, few, if any, contributions to candidates will involve quid quo quo arrangements. And for that, he cites Citizens United. So he's just saying, right. he's yeah. just citing himself. Congress right. didn't support the fact that there's no quid pro quo. In any ways, there is no quid pro quo I because I said it 15 so years I ago. Corruption. Yeah. Like there's one sentence where he cites Citizens United and he cites Citizens United for the, oh, he goes, he goes, for example, we have denied attempts to, we have denied attempts to reduce the amount of. That was from like five years ago. No, that was that was like yeah. basically a quid pro quo uh, transaction. Is like basic as long as there's like the. Is trapping. that the Montana case? No, it was in uh, Virginia, I think. Oh um, no, McConnell was. Virginia. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, I don't. Know yeah, like I think I think McCutcheon may have been like Montana had an anti campaign finance law going back to the 1800s because they're like we know that these are all right. rogues and knaves and they're <laughs> easy to bribe. So we won't let you do it. And they knocked out that law. That might have been McCutcheon, yeah. but I'm not positive. But then he goes on to say, we have denied attempts to level electoral opportunities by equaling, by equalizing candidate resources. Okay. And to limit the general influence a contributor may have over an elected official. 
see Citizens United. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you should be real proud of that one. <laughs> um, because his feeling is that general influence isn't quid pro quo because apparently the right incantation was said. And so he has like a really high bar for what counts as a bribe where it has to be like yeah. in an envelope. And that, that is that Virginia case where they were like, I like we hung out like three weeks later and you gave me a lot of money in other things. And then I passed something. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Like, yeah. He like gave he gave some basically I think someone gave him and his wife like tons. of Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't remember. And then he that. recommended someone for like a position on a board yeah. or something. And the Supreme Court's like, well, I don't know. I think that that was Robert's to. opinion. Right. I, I want to say. I think so. Yeah. I think Robert's writes all of these. Opinions. Yeah, exactly. He's he, like, he wrote, hey, if it's not if you didn't say it was corruption, it's not corruption. Yeah, I think he may have written Bridgegate too, where like every time Congress tries to reinstitute honest services fraud, Roberts is like, no, <laughs> it's either a bribe or nothing. I won't even let you. And like what happens in all of these cases is the prosecutors know exactly what honest services fraud is because these are scummy people. Right. And the appellate, you know, the district courts and the appellate courts always let these cases go forward because they're scummy people. And then it gets to Roberts and Roberts is like, who's to say? <laughs> who's to say if this person is scummy because I'm going to create a, a hypothetical where a less scummy person is caught up in this yeah. law. Not this person so who admitted to being scummy in lower court right. proceedings. Right. And so it's just one it's just one thing after that after another in this opinion where money isn't money. Where he he actually makes a point of saying that it doesn't seem really corrupt because most campaigns, most self-funded loans get paid back anyway. And I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Why like how could that possibly matter? And then the dissent is like, first of all, that's makes no sense and second of all it's also not true <laughs> like first of all like you have to win to get paid back because yeah. the pay the loans of losers don't get paid back <laughs> the self-financed losers actually don't get paid back and since they don't get paid back you think that makes a difference and the reason all of these loans get paid back is because for the last however many years, you've been limited to $250,000 of guaranteed paid back. So people only loan the campaign $250,000. You know, one of the things that Kagan said is no one's stopping them from spending money. They're only being stopped from loaning money yeah. that other people will pay for. Right? Yeah, it's right. like she, Roberts treats it like it's not a difference. And Kagan is like, Are you sure you don't see the difference between spending money and having people who need you pay your way? As I read this opinion and as I read this dissent, I, w I went into like this spiral thinking about how on its face insane it is that there's like this loan system period as opposed to like, giving money to a campaign or whatever. Like, I guess I don't understand the mechanism by which you would like disperse it when the campaign was over or whatever, but it seems patently, the more you read this stuff, either argument on either side, insane that there's like an established system where you're like, okay, I'm going to run and I'm going to lend this money, but like 
gonna need that back later, you guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Robert cites the debates over the law, right? One senator remarked that without the loan repayment limitation, a winning candidate who loaned money could get it back from his constituents at fundraising events where he could ask, how would you like me to vote now that I'm a senator? That was Senator Domenici. Another candidate stated that candidates have a constitutional right to buy the office, but they do not have a constitutional right to resell it. That was Senator Hutchinson, right? And Roberts is like, but so what? <laughs> he just he's like, ah, that's not a legislative finding. That's just yap, 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 yap. Yeah, yap. it's just puffery. It's all it is. <laughs> and he even jujitsu's it. He jujitsu's this restriction to being about bedraggled congressmen who are afraid of running against Bloomberg. Right. But they're not afraid of running against Bloomberg. Bloomberg doesn't loan the money. Bloomberg <laughs> spends the money. Yeah. They are worried about people like Ted Cruz, <laughs> who the day back. after the election calls to have the loans paid back. <laughs> Like, it's just complete, like, he's just incoherent all the way through. This forgets that, like, he says, the dissent makes the argument that the contributions go toward repaying a loan and it enriches the candidate personally. And he goes, but this forgets that we're talking about the repayment of a loan, not a gift. That's like, no, they're the same here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You didn't loan it to them. You loaned it to yourself. Yeah, to you. And yeah. now you're getting someone else to pay you back. And he got four other people. No, it's 6-3. It's not even 5-4. Yeah. I no, forgot. Yeah, this is I six, noticed three. that. Yeah. Everyone, everyone jumps on board. Yeah. It, it goes to my conspiracy theory that I alluded to earlier, which is that they're just trying to lower the amount of corruption in, in the U.S. and the like official international NGO rankings are just trying to lower it down to zero as much as possible by legalizing as much of it as you can. <laughs> <laughs> that way there's no corruption. Yeah, it's the freest democracy of all time. Thank you, Patrick, Eric, and Tim for joining me. Additional thanks to Riverboat Gamblers and Patrick for the music. And a final thank you to Dan Parshall, our sound engineer, whose band Candy Necklace has an EP coming out soon. See you here next time. I hope it's not as long a break. Thanks for listening.